Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just after four o'clock and it's time for two hours of Tuesday Home Time with Jane Bartlett. And thanks to Chris, and he'll be back again next week for his two hours at two o'clock. Today, increasing violence on the island of Mindanao in the Philippines. I'm speaking with Peter Murphy, who's a Sydney human rights and trade union activist. The Baykeeper Report with the Port Phillip Baykeeper, Neil Blake. The historic vote in the UN to ban nuclear weapons, Dr. Margie Beavis, the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, was there with nearly 40 other Australians, but not the Australian government. A year in Mexico as a Peace Brigade's international volunteer, that's Lewis Robinson. But first, as we always do, we give voice to Mr. Kevin Healy. A week, Jan, listener, when after celebrating last week our Independence Day with our Uncle Donald country, we explained that bit last week, but for those who missed it, it's pretty obvious. But this week must sadly report what sombre celebrations, despite having the greatest big supremo ever, ever, for they were held under the threat, the cloud of imminent invasion, as good, good, peace-loving U.S. Arbonnet Secretary for World State Rex Killamson denounced evil, evil, war-loving North Korea as the biggest threat to world peace ever, ever. Where'd that come from? Who tweeted that? Anyway, testing all these skyrockets as it reacts to the US of good, good, peace-loving South Korea conducting train-killer war games off its borders, making it think for some silly reason maybe they're practicing for the real thing. And to show it would fight for peace, the good, good US of reacted by holding more train-killer war games on evil, evil North Korea's border, and China said maybe North Korea Korea would stop firing skyrockets if you stop practicing to invade it, and the good, good, peace-loving U.S. I've said that would be giving into evil, evil, war-loving North Korea's threats, and all that shows just how rational all this is, and true blue Aussie, naturally, it's axiomatic really, true blue Aussie, good, good, peace-loving true blue Aussie said, evil North Korea was a threat to the whole world, and we would do whatever Donald and Rex order us to do, and we asked Rex how many bases or train killer personnel the biggest threat to world peace has around the world. Well, none, but they've got these dangerous skyrockets, and everyone knows fireworks can be very dangerous. Yeah, sure, sure, well, but, well, when I said the biggest threat, I didn't mean little evil North Korea, but how many bases and train killer personnel has good, good, peace-loving U.S. I've got around the world? Ha! Where haven't we? That's how much we love peace. Which just goes to show how far the U.S. will go to make the world a safer place. And we all feel even safer with Donald and Rex deciding on where and how they'll maintain that peace. We will maintain our commitment to the Korean Peninsula, Rex threatened. Sorry, sorry, promised. Whether they want it or not. 
While on that, reported last week that Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo and Deputy Big Supremo Barnacle had headed to the Northern Hemisphere summer to give them an idea how brilliant our great leaders are. No fool there, we said, escaping winter, but this week on the no fool there bit, the hubris of being acting Big Supremo drew Barnacle back to our true blue Aussie winter. So let's hope nothing untoward happens. Although we kicked off day one, announced we could place trade bans on China over evil North Korea, which went down a treat with those who really matter in the caring business class and its party. Well, the governing one of its parties, who spent the rest of the day explaining Barnacle didn't mean we could place trade bans on China over evil North Korea, confirming our concerns about Barnacle. Then again, obviously obsessed by North Korea, he did say at the weekend we must keep the train killer invasion option on the table. But thus far, his minders haven't clarified for us whether that means we must keep the train killer in invasion options on the table or not. On train killer merchandise, Zion, poor beleaguered, threatened Zion, a blast from the past in the Lord Rupert True Blue Aussie trade-in with the big red True Blue Aussie up the top. Peter Baldwin, real name, former Socialist Party Federal Minister whom I'd forgotten existed, attacking irresponsibles in the New South Wales Socialist Party for wanting it to recognise a Palestinian state. Evil, evil, warmongering Palestine, a warmonger which doesn't exist, a non-country, non-people. But Baldwin says the ratbags who want to recognise the unrecognisable are influenced by the ethnic components of certain key seats, as if a political party would let such matters influence it. But the interesting key to his argument is that a so-called non-people Palestinian state based on the West Bank and Gaza could never be a real state, real country, under the UN of the US of the UN of the world definition of a viable state. Yet that is just the solution his great peace, love and idol, Zion, proposes. And for the record, opposes at the same time. Baldwin points out there could be peace tomorrow between Zion and the non-state Palestinian non-people if it wasn't for the non-state Palestinian non-people. Pete's article reflected the sensible centre balance for Lord Rupert's Trump tradian with the big red true blue Aussie is so renowned. Bringing us to, for once, we have to praise a caring business class party ex-poly. Now party supremo Nick Grinnewile exploiting, interviewed about big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull's speech, eulogising the sensible centre. Grinnewile exploiting said the best leaders represented the sensible centre. And even socialist party leaders. For instance, no one could accuse former great and beloved big supremo nuclear hawk himself of being a mad lefty, a socialist. And we can only agree with Nick. No one could accuse. Then again, it shows how far the not-so-sensible centre has moved when Pig Eye and Bob is the exemplar of progressive politics. One of my father's regular phrases was, Menzies will grind the workers into the dust. But then all the indications point to that being what the sensible centre means. 
Now back to Lord Rupert, this time he's whopping sin. Last week we praised it for bringing us the big news. Entire front page to a thug thumping someone in a suburban footy match. Well by Thursday, Lord Rupert bought us a double page colour spread with lots of pickies and has followed it up with more spreads and pickies ever since. There's another one this morning. The news so big of a 22-year-old true blue Aussie tennis player who spent the night at a nightclub. A Soho nightclub, mind you, with, wait for it, with girls. After doing what true blue Aussies do and bombing out of Wimbledon day one. A 22-year-old male nightclubbing with girls. Good God, what's the world coming to? What's wrong with young people today? But news we needed to know. Did I say news? Given he's a brat who most people, quite rightly, can't stand. Then again, that other troubler was he tennis brat who most people, quite rightly, can't stand, even upset his sponsors, including his racket sponsor, Head. Now, I'd never heard of Head Rackets before they dumped him, but our very, very, very bad joke out of all this is that he used to turn up with a case of heads, but now he's just a head case. <laughs> Warned you, told you it was bad. Bad news for poor caring employers. We have to feel for Business Profits Council Supremo grant them nothing king, prevented from doing what he'd love to do. After the Reserve Bank Supremo fill low wages, suggested workers shouldn't be afraid of asking for higher wages. Given there's no chance they'll succeed, after poor grant them, grant them nothing had recovered via the smelling salts, he pointed out caring employers would love nothing more than to give workers pay rises, given the experts who know all about these things complain one of the major problems with the economy is slow wages growth, a problem which we have continually pointed out seems to have an obvious solution. Business would be delighted to see incomes grow, he stressed. But, well, the other mechanisms, whatever they are, weren't in place and prices needed to rise because they were rising slower than wages, uh, which is news to all of us. So imagine Grant them nothing's hunt, uh, hurt and despair at not being able to do what he would so love to do. On the same hand, Chamber of Profits Supremo Innes Wiley Fox exhaled relief that fair work true blue Aussie no longer work choices just looks like it had not caved into evil union demands that casual workers be deemed not casual after six months of regular work, but irresponsibly did grant the claim for workers after 12 months. This decision at least gives these people secure, insecure work for 12 months. But it's still a pity their position will now have to be reviewed at 11 months and 29 days. And in a said, no satire, no embellishment, that if the union's six-month claim had been granted, it would have spelt the end of true blue Aussie labour relations. He really said that, showing just how delicate a flower is the economy, how precariously it hangs by an unravelling threat, threat, how it is only reasonable, therefore, that caring employers reject every selfish claim by evil unions. Although in this case, Retail Profits Council Supremo Russell Zapperman did presage the end of the world through the 12-month secure, insecure decision. Caring retail profits employers needed flexibility, win-win, as workers have the security of knowing their insecurity will continue.
which they can explain to the landlord. Now, there's one much-admired group which does not require flexibility. The money or else. And finally, thankfully, on the positive side, Russell and the caring employers can exhale that sigh of relief in that most affected casual sinecures or insecures, no relation to sinecures, are on enterprise agreements and not on award conditions. So caring employers can continue to avoid this crippling decision. Phew. That unravelling thread which hangs between the greatest little economic order and disaster may hold together a little longer. We can only hope. Good afternoon. And we'll hope with you, Mr Kevin Healy. And as I say every week, if you don't get enough of Kevin on a Tuesday, there's always Wednesday morning between 9 and 10 for his other programme, City Limits. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival returns from the 9th to the 16th of July at four venues, Howler, Longplay, Cinema Nova and the Laneway Learning Centre. Featuring an array of stellar documentaries direct from South by Southwest Film Festival in Texas, Tribeca, Hot Docs, Sundance, Cannes and more. With over 80 documentaries on pop culture, music, investigative journalism, the environment, First Nations peoples and LGBTIQ communities, plus free master classes and high profile guests. There really is something there for everyone. For more information, go to mdwf.org.au or get your tickets today via Event Finder, Mosh Ticks or Film Freeway. For 3CR supporter. Earlier this morning I spoke with human rights and trade union activist from Sydney, Peter Murphy, and pointed out that we're hearing very little of what's happening in the Philippines, southern island of Mindanao, and asked him, with his information that he has, to give us an update on how the situation's going. And I believe that it's escalating rather than diminishing. Yes, it seems that the declaration of martial law in the last week of May only seems to have expanded the scale of the conflict around Marawi City. So I think uh, the last time I spoke to you, I said that there was over 100,000, 120,000 people who were displaced. And now, about a month later, we've got over 400,000 displaced. So that accounts for the entire population of the city, which is about 200,000, and another 200,000 from neighbouring little townships and uh, barangays. Just give us an idea how big the city is. It's actually not so big, but we're talking about a population about half the size of Canberra. Yeah. So um, it's uh, a fairly densely uh, packed urban area. And very poor? Yes, yes. I would say poverty is a really important feature of the whole situation in Mindanao and also in this western side of Mindanao. And as well as that, Marawi City was, you know, one of the few urban areas which was virtually all Muslim. So it's a sort of cultural feature as well uh, of the place. Nearly half a million people displaced is a catastrophic situation that's uh, developed in the last three or four weeks to this scale. I think one of the factors is that uh, the aerial bombing of the centre of Marawi City is has really shocked uh, the people 
and it seems to have inspired or provoked other Moro clans who aren't uh, associated with the internet, you know, Islamic State or, or so-called terrorist groups have taken up arms against the Philippine military because of this uh, outrage that they perceive against all of them. Is the military, in a sense, out of control? No, it seems to be. <laughs> it seems to be following a plan, but uh, it's also, I think, quite an incompetent military in the in the sense of having sort of set piece battles and um, certainly fighting in an urban area. It's much more used to moving around the countryside and attacking virtually unarmed communities and therefore, you know, its, its soldiers have a great sense of impunity. I think uh, in, in Mindanao they've faced some battles in the last 20 years or so which have also demonstrated this problem for them, that they, they can't fight an organised armed opposition very well. Is there also racism amongst this with different religion? Yes, I think... Uh, it is a sort of a racism, as far as I can, I've experienced myself. Quite common for non-Muslim Filipinos to refer to Moro people as, uh, you know, dirty, and unwashed, and uh, ignorant, and and so on, which you know, for Australian ears, sounds depressingly familiar. So yeah, there's a sort of a racism that's it's part of the situation. So there's a contempt from the uh, Manila command and through the bulk of the society for Moro people. But of course, Moro people are very proud of their own tradition and history so, and their religion. You know, there's, that's the basis for quite a sharp conflict, and that, that conflict has been going on for a very, very long time. And that's mainly over land? When it comes down to it, we're looking at the seizure of lands, that's right, the displacement of populations from their traditional domains and uh, their loss of productive assets as a result. Yeah, people, people really are, resent being marginalised on their own, what they perceive rightly as their own land. I think what will happen here around Marawi City is that the population that I've just described, about 400,000, they won't all be able to come back at all and that some of the lands will be converted to you know, a commercial plantation that is very, very large-scale agricultural, agro-industry projects. And this has happened in many other parts of Mindanao over the last 60 or 70 years. Yes, you say that the people are poor, but the resources there are not poor, they're rich. And you've had foreign, particularly US, companies in there exploiting the, the land and the, the product for a long time. Yes, yes, I think so. US and Japanese are the most prominent. The Koreans are also in there now as well. But yes, US and Japanese. And then we're looking here at um, resources like agricultural land, uh, mineral resources, oil and gas uh, as the main, the main uh, focus. And more recently there is some uh, interest in uh, tourism, you know, mega-tourism resort projects, uh, which also greatly you know, displace people. So this is at the, at the crux of the matter, is it? I think so. I think uh, for... A very long time this has been the underlying uh, dynamic that uh, outside groups enter backed up by armed force, force people off their land and then exploit the land. Uh, the, the issues of uh, religion and uh, political identity of course come into play but the, the sort of deeper dynamic is the seizure of assets for production. And where does IS come into it? 
very late in the piece, I think. Uh, we're talking here about something that's perhaps a couple of years old at the most. But again, I think uh, IS has been uh, recruiting allegedly Muslim fighters, but really, I think, uh, young, poor and uh, a bit criminal young people to go to the Middle East to fight. And so some of them uh, might have come back to Mindanao uh, with a message to form an IS grouping in Mindanao. But I think what's, uh, what I've heard is that really IS from uh, Iraq and, and Syria has contacted organised groups in Mindanao and asked them to swear allegiance to IS and then they've given them money if they've done that. And part of the deal was if, if we give you money, you've got to do a uh, dramatic demonstration of your allegiance to IS, i.e. you've got to uh, kill people and you've got to video it and, and uh, log the video on, on the internet. That's sort of been happening, but this, this event in uh, Marawi City is uh, is by far the the, um, the most uh, dramatic thing that's happened. There's nothing like it uh, actually before. It's more like uh, people getting into a room with a video camera and a, and a black flag and saying something. It's, a very pri- it's actually very private. <laughs> But uh, the Maute clan, it, it's a family group in uh, the Marawi city area. The Abu Sayyaf is, is, is not so much a clan entity as a uh, long-standing kidnap for ransom criminal group whose origins go back to uh, fighters returning from the uh, Afghanistan war against the Soviet Union. So people who came back to the Philippines in the mid-1990s, a long time ago now. What's the involvement of the U.S. in all this? What's been happening in the last there's, couple of months? There's a lot, there's a lot of speculation about uh, the scale of U.S. involvement in this. Certainly, I think the National Democratic Front of the Philippines are uh, saying that this incident at Marawi City is, is, is directed by the U.S. and directed by the CIA. And who are the National Democratic Front? Uh, they're the political representational pig group of... Uh, the left-wing uh, rebellion against the oligarchy of uh, the Philippines that's been going on since 1968 or 69. You know, we would see them from Australia as an identifiable communist or socialist group, and they've got significant military strength in Mindanao and other areas of the Philippines. They are probably, uh, clear, I'd say, clearly the leading uh, voice for proper land reform and uh, uh, social justice, the ending of corruption in government and uh, genuine national independence in the country. And the Philippines government is in a, in a negotiation with them about those issues to try to end this long-standing uh, armed conflict since the late 60s. So they've got a lot of uh, concern, of course, that what's happening in Marawi City is completely upending uh, an important political process with the government and it has. So when martial law was declared just a few days later um, at the end of May the government uh, peace panel in the Netherlands uh, withdrew from talks about these substantive issues about land and industrialisation and social justice. They're looking at well why did this happen? It seems that uh, their view is there's a strategy uh, working out now to really push Duterte, the President Duterte, um, back into a, a sort of a, a firm pro-US position by creating a massive military 
in a catastrophe in Mindanao and then leaving him to rely on his generals, and his generals are very much uh, pro-US. There's a sort of logic in, in the NDF view. You know, the beneficiaries of what's going on in Marawi City seem to be, in the end, the US control of the Philippines society, and therefore maybe they were behind it in the first place. And you can see, you know, if somebody uh, contacts you from Syria and says, do this, I'll give you a million dollars or half a million dollars, that could be anybody. It's very murky. That's really a possible explanation of the situation. And another it really is that IS is a, a huge blowback against uh, US intelligence operations of the past. It has its roots in, in US operations, but uh, has since uh, turned into a monster that the American military are now fighting. It's been capable of uh, fomenting this uh, really big uh, problem in, in uh, Mindanao. U.S. is taking advantage of that. Do we know precisely what the role of Australia is in Mindanao? We don't know precisely because it's all a very secretive thing, but uh, the Australian Special uh, Air Service, SAS, has been operating in uh, the Philippines since about 2006. That uh, a sort of a fast boat uh, patrol capacity in, in this area of western Mindanao. They, I think, are based out of Zamboanga City uh, as part of a, another US military base in Zamboanga City, a little to the south of Marawi City. You know, you just have to expect that Australian special forces are playing some kind of role alongside the, the Philippines military. Um, but it, the role of the US is a bit more prominent um, because the uh, Philippines generals asked for U.S. assistance when they got bogged down in uh, Marawi City and uh, so the U.S. Uh, officially helping them with uh, really deciding where to bomb and how to deploy forces and, and providing some more equipment. It's a very destructive equipment. The U.S. involvement has, has been a feature of this time when the, the number of internally displaced people is actually... You know, multiplied several times over, you know, from 100,000, which is very bad, to over 400,000 people. Now the uh, Australian government, at the end of June, around the 22nd or 23rd of June, made an offer uh, to the Philippines Defence Secretary to provide some surveillance aircraft, and the Philippines Defence Secretary accepted it. So this, this is a bit of a pattern that Australia does something on, you know, at the re really at the request of the United States and there's this sort of charade that uh, the Philippines uh, is an independent country and, uh, and uh, either accepts or rejects these sort of offers, but it can't really reject. These uh, P-3 Orion aircraft are uh, allegedly the offer of support and they would be overflying Mindanao using sophisticated surveillance equipment to both get images and also pick up any electronic transmissions that, that might assist the Philippines military in overwhelming this IS thing. But um, I think I've, I've seen in the media some other comments that, uh, I mean, these uh, P-3 Orions would, would have been flying over Mindanao all the time anyway because they patrol all the way to the South China Sea. I think um, it's, it's a bit of a cat and mouse thing here where Australia is playing a symbolic uh, role of endorsing the US um, and the Philippines military operation, even though it's so disastrous. 
all in the name of um, counter-terrorism. What alarmed me a little further was just a couple of days after Foreign Minister Julie Bishop uh, made this statement of the Orion aircraft, there was a retired US General David Petraeus came to Sydney to speak to the Liberal Party National Conference dinner, you know, as a, as a motivational speaker. Now, Petraeus was the general who was the commander of the, the surge of US military action in, in Iraq in 2008. He was also, I think, uh, head of the CIA for a while, but he, he got uh, disgraced by giving information away to a, a lover, I think. I can't remember all the details. But uh, disgraced, whatever, um, he's retired, but he, he's, he's really a sort of celebrity um, and an unofficial voice of US military. So at the dinner, he, he said that... Um, he expected Australia to play the lead role in the crushing of the uh, IS in Mindanao. So that's a sign that the United States military privately is asking Australia to commit ground forces and more air forces to this fight. We have got a military agreement with the Philippines that was, I think, signed in 2000 and ratified in 2012, but it originated under Howard in 2007. So there's a legal framework in which this can happen and they can ignore the United Nations and, and all the other commitments Australia has, has allegedly you know, made about uh, the conduct of conflicts uh, among nations. You know, we, I think, need to do a lot in Australia to, to alert the public that this is going on and try to avoid a situation where Australian military are taking sides against really a very impoverished community uh, in Mindanao of the Moro people. You know, instead of Australia playing the role of pointing out the very deep roots of this conflict needing to be addressed in a political way and a lot more uh, material uh, assistance should be available to the people in Mindanao to help them overcome, you know, the, the impact of these many, many decades of violence and uh, warfare that they've had, had to endure. Is this also another provocation to China? I don't think so. It's more like a, you know, looking at it you know, politically and soberly that President Duterte, was a very, his election was a big disruption of the relationship between the United States and the Philippines. He was making overtures to China and Russia, which would have just really disturbed the U.S., uh, it certainly did uh, disturb President Obama, and although Trump hasn't made many clear statements, it, it will surely continue to provoke a lot of anger in uh, upper echelons of the U.S. military and intelligence. This is a sort of an opportunity to put Duterte under control. And in that sense, it's sort of pulling back from China a possibility you know, of a different set of relationships in the region. This opening that Duterte made to China actually helped defuse the South China Sea tensions and uh, it certainly assisted Filipino fishing people to resume their e economic life okay. So I, I do think it's a sort of a setback, but it wouldn't interpret it as a, as a sort of a provocation against China. It's uh, just... Uh, you know, grabbing back a, a sort of a, a chance for a different way. And uh, in that sense, I think it's quite negative. Of course, it's, you know, the, the primary concern is that there's, you know, nearly half a million people displaced in Mindanao and uh, our city being destroyed. You can't see who's going to pay to fix that up. So 
So uh, I think that our primary concern should be to stop the fighting and help people recover rather than play with their lives in, in this sort of, you know, giant chessboard of uh, intrigue that, that goes on. Where have all these people gone to? They've gone to other cities, you know, and to uh, relatives and so on, but a lot of them are in school halls, municipal halls and church compounds or mosques in the surrounding areas. And looking after them? Food? Sanitation? Basically, the community is, it seems to be the main source of support. I'm looking at the media and uh, other news reporting of the situation and uh, sort of civil society, uh, especially the progressive movement, sent a mission there to, to aid about nearly four weeks ago and they uh, took with them a lot of uh, medical and food and uh, some other shelter supplies. They were blocked in some areas by the military from entering further to, to help people but they did distribute a lot of uh, goods. I'm afraid to report that I think the Philippines government hasn't really stepped up to the um, plate on this and that it's really church and other community organisations, trade unions and so on that, that are helping. And there's not a lot to go back to? Not at this stage. In fact, there's, there's less and less to go back to. And uh, I am seeing reports you now that a huge number of these uh, displaced people are women and children and there's you know, severe health dangers because of the conditions that they're in, you know. So this uh, crisis will only get worse and more catastrophic the longer it's allowed to go on. And martial law is likely to continue? The Constitution says it can last for 60 days and the 60 days will run out on July 22. The uh, President is uh, hinting that he'd like to extend it and that he might even extend it over the whole of the Philippines. This would be a huge outrage and uh, he's, he's already copped a huge amount of protests from across the board for declaring martial law in Mindanao. So he's a, he's a little bit taken aback, uh, a guy who likes to be super popular. So uh, he may be, you know, blocked in a way from extending it. But uh, as you can see from the fact that the conflict got bigger, that is there's more people shooting at each other than there was at the start. It may well be that he'll, in his generals will say, no, let's keep going with martial law, and he will, he will go with that. And what can be done here from Australia to assist the people who have been displaced? Uh, well, I, I'm not sure of, of any extra aid going from Australia to Mindanao, but there's always uh, a need for the Action Aid Feeder, Union Aid Abroad, Caritas, they've all got connections into the area and uh, they will be getting requests, I think, for emergency aid. So that's one, one level of help. But, but really the most important thing that can be done by Australia is to push for the fighting to stop. There's no need for this to keep going. But if you've got Australian military there, it's likely to fall on deaf ears. Only if it's a secret, I think, Jan, because... The Australian people have no sense uh, of... Uh, I'm talking of, about the government. Yes, yes, but the government in the end has to respond to public opinion. So while ever it's uh, under wraps, a secret, not really reported properly in our media, then uh, yes, they can go on with this, but once more and more people speak out about the huge scale of this and how wrong it is, and the fact that the Australian military are involved and may get more involved... Well, I think then, then the pressure will come on them to rethink. So I think that that's our 
our most important thing we can do. And when uh, calls come from aid agencies for help, that will be part of the pressure on the government to do something. And it's, it's a crazy situation uh, if we're um, creating refugees and then we're you know, feeding the refugees. It's, it's crazy. Well, I think uh, just go back, going back to the peace talks between the NDF and uh, the government of the Philippines, there's another session due in, in August. This is a very important thing that Australia should be supporting rather than helping to undermine. It seems that you know earlier this year they were supportive of these peace talks going forward. So I think again the you know the focus on the deeper underlying problems in Philippine society is the positive way forward for everyone, and it's where Australia can play a bigger role. You know these peace talks are actually facilitated by the Royal Norwegian Government, which is on the other side of the planet. And Australia could definitely join with Norway or other governments as well to jointly sponsor these peace talks and give them more and more political support. But uh, I think it's, it's, hard, it's hard for us to get the, the government and even the opposition to talk about this. But I think uh, the, what's happening in Marawi City you know, is the sort of thing that can happen when you're not helping you know when you when you're in in the end caught between you know various commitments you think you've got to the united states or counter-terrorism or whatever and and you take your eye off the basic issues that people are trying to deal with in their lives thanks peter no, thank you very much jen and that was peter murphy who's a, a sydney-based trade union and human rights activist and just in case you're one of those people who have forgotten to pay your radiothon, I'm sure that the listeners to this program have all done the right thing. But just in case there's someone who normally listens to another program and they think, I've oh, forgotten, here's what you do. Are you wondering how to pay your donation? You can pay online by going to 3cr.org.au or call us on 94198377. You can also visit us in person at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy and pay by cash, cheque or FTPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR, Radio for Change. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR. Still supporting musicians and writers, and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. With me once again on Tuesday Home Time is Neil Blake, who has the title of Port Phillip Baykeeper. And Neil, there's lots of keepers around the world, aren't there? Yes, uh, there are um, sound keepers and coast keepers and river keepers and creek keepers. Uh, it's, it's really a fantastic thing. Basically, the group is under the umbrella of Waterkeeper Alliance, 
which is uh, based in the United States, but has a, a global network, though, of community advocates for waterways, which is a great concept, really. Started in the U.S.? It started in the U.S. I think it was in the Hudson River, probably around about 40 years ago. And as interestingly enough, it was from uh, people who are from the fishing community, you know, who so we weren't happy about the, the toxins and various things getting into the, into the river. And uh, so they started agitating to get pollution cleaned up and, and more to the point, stopped from getting in there in the first place. And that really is where the, the concept came from. Most countries in the world have got keepers oh, of some uh, sort? Uh, I'm not sure of the exact number, but a couple of hundred have, yeah. So, yeah, from Iraq, you know, all sorts of diverse places, some in South America, uh, you know, and there's several in, in Australia. In fact, uh, there's a Yarra, Yarra River Keeper and a Werribee River Keeper and the Port Phillip Bay Keeper. So we, we work closely together to uh, promote healthy waterways. It's an interesting sort of a, a role to be in, really, and... Uh, it, Along the way, you met lots of positive people doing fantastic things. Such as? Well, uh, I was fortunate to uh, meet the Water Watch volunteers who work with Melbourne Water, monitoring different aspects of, of waterways and creeks and rivers uh, in the Melbourne region uh, recently. And, uh, yeah, they're wonderful people uh, just doing good work in their areas. It's really heartening to sort of meet so many positive people. And there was a conference recently? Uh, each year, that an annual conference, uh, generally in the United States, or it has been to date, and uh, April, our, the Echo Centre Executive Officer uh, went over to attend there, and uh, also uh, Andrew Kelly, the Yarra Riverkeeper, and John Forrester, the Werribee Riverkeeper, were there, so flying the flag for, for Australia. Uh, they made all sorts of interesting people. Uh, they, April brought back a fantastic CD of music from the Bahamas, which has got all these sort of uh, activist songs there in a, in a dance music beat. <laughs> fantastic stuff. The idea of it is to have community advocates for waterways, as I mentioned, and uh, the, in simple terms, the aim is to have waters that are drinkable, fishable and swimmable, so uh, generally providing health for the environment as well as uh, people. Did they bring any new ideas back with them? Not really. I mean, uh, there's all sorts of ideas, so, uh, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if there, if there ever has been a new idea in the last 150 years. <laughs> Jen, you, you could help me out there. That, that's the ones that actually managed to take root, I suppose, that are, that are the ones that get remembered. Well, let's talk about the health of um, the bay at the moment. The health of the bay at the moment is um, we have had the... I think it is at the driest June on record or, or thereabouts. Uh, so very low rainfall. So um, that'll be interesting to see uh, what's going on, how that pans out, because the general, the general um, concept is that if there's a drought on land, there's a drought in the ocean. So uh, you do need influx of nutrients from land in, into the waterways to trigger the food chain, etc. So it's not necessarily going to be a disaster, but uh, there's some interesting things going on. In fact, about a week ago there was, a, um, or in, in the past week, a whole bunch of puffer fish or porcupine fish washed up dead down on the foreshore at Frankston. That's why we're still sort of looking into why that uh, event occurred. Uh, apparently, though, there have been related you know, fish deaths uh, uh, down at Malakuta, there were a thousand leather jackets not that long ago washed up as well, and then a bit further around, up to, along the coast, a whole bunch of other fish. And uh, apparently, the, there's a cold 
current that's actually been six to seven degrees cooler coming down along the uh, the eastern coast, which uh, could be have what's caused that. But it's hard to get to the bottom of these things in straight away, though. I have been reading that the, the sea is getting warmer, not colder. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, and perhaps that's why there might have been such a shock <laughs> for these animals. Is that they, um, certainly the sea surface temperatures from Broome in a clockwise direction around the South Australia over the past two years have actually been uh, above average or higher than ever before. So that's ex- exceptional and has possibly got something to do with the weather patterns that we've been experiencing over this June. It's been quite extraordinary. We seem to have had a constant high-pressure system just hovering over southern Australia, which is why there's been vir- virtually no wind and no rain. Does that mean, in one sense, that the bay is a bit cleaner because there's less rubbish being washed down the drains? Yeah, that's right, and um, the beaches are a bit cleaner as a result of that too because uh, we do get a lot of trash um, washed out, flushed off the streets, but if we don't have that rainfall, then it doesn't happen. Uh, There are little bits getting in, but uh, not to the extent that often in wetter years would occur. And what's happening sort of statewide or Melbourne-wide to educate people about the fact that whatever gets dropped in the street ends up in the bay? There has been a litter hotspots program which has been uh, going on for uh, probably about five years now. That's the Cleaner Yarran Bays program from the state government and there's been quite a significant investment of money into various projects at a local level to address litter issues. The other one, I guess, is that Melbourne Water are currently uh, developing catchment management strategies for uh, different catchments around the Melbourne region, at the moment working on the Maribyrnong catchment. So all of those um, issues, such as uh, litter, um, get rolled into those kind of strategies too. So I think uh, I'm feeling pretty hopeful, really, that we're on the way to a plastic-free bay. I mean, that's what uh, I'd like to put out there, just to raise the bar and say this is what we're actually aspiring to achieve. There's a lot of wider community awareness of the issue now, and uh, I think that uh, a lot of that's come about through the Litter Hotspots program because there's just been more resources, I guess, put to, uh, to the topic of litter in general at a local level, many more people are getting exposed to, and to the realisation that uh, the, the streets are connected to the bay. And of course, even though they, things might say, or manufacturers might say, well, this plastic is biodegradable, people have the idea that that's good. I went to a health food shop, I was quite shocked when they, I saw they had plastic bags and they've got yeah. biodegradable written all over it and it's a good mm. thing. It, yeah. It's not necessarily, is it? No, well, we're all biodegradable, Jan, but uh, as we might be a bit unpleasant at various points in the <laughs> in the process. <laughs> yeah, so that's right. Uh, bags that are biodegradable, they don't just disappear in a puff of smoke, and uh, so they can be uh, damaging to the environment for some time during the process. And it's the little bits when when they do break down into the tiny bits that are often the danger yeah, to the fish right. and the birds. That's it. They're, they're easily ingested. They're the smaller they get. All of that sort of stuff. I mean, the, the, the boomerang bags movement is a fantastic one. You know, where there's 
wonderful people out there in the suburbs that are making uh, shopping bags out of uh, old pillowcases and things like that and, and making them available at supermarkets to people to pick up and, and use. Fantastic stuff that's, that's happening. To people are saying, look, we're sick of uh, this business as usual stuff. We, we, we want to have a, a, a positive future. It's going to be plastic bag free. There are places in the world and even in Australia where it is plastic bag free? Many states around Australia are actually moved away from uh, plastic shopping bags and uh, there's still campaigning going on in Victoria at the moment. There's one of the last bastions of <laughs> plastic bags to have Why that. Why is it so of. difficult to get it in Victoria? I guess it's just a matter of like in all politics that people do the numbers and uh, if the there's, there's enough people in the community who don't care less or are not interested. Well, then uh, they're not going to draw a flack from uh, by doing something that could be seen as contentious by that group. I, I guess I'm a political pragmatist, and uh, things happen when the community uh, sets the agenda, really, and, and makes politicians aware that uh, if they don't do things, then it's at their peril. But in a sense, the community has to be educated. That's right. Yeah. It's a, if that doesn't happen. Nothing happens. That's exactly right. I, I've really got a strong belief that uh, policy begins really from community awareness and if the community is, lacks awareness or, or don't careness, <laughs> then uh, yeah, we're in trouble. Our policies will remain sort of behind the times and uh, not good for the environment. What else is happening down at the Port Phillip Eco Centre? We're going through a bit of a transition at the moment. We've got a couple of new projects that have come on board and um, we're pleased that uh, with the Port Phillip Bay Environment Fund we've got a couple of larger um, projects that have been approved. Well, one's called the Living Waters Work Bees. The concept of that is um, that people who install rainwater tanks or rain gardens, systems that are uh, actually promoting healthy and good effect, efficient water use can have their installation costs uh, a rebate contributed towards them through volunteers participating in the healthy waterways activity. It's a way of connecting community uh, and uh, creating uh, effective water infrastructure but also connecting those people who might not necessarily have got involved in a community group or you know, participated in a beach cleanup or whatever to actually get out there and, and make some positive contributions. So that's pretty exciting. We've, we've run a similar project at, in the Ulster Creek catchment a couple of years ago and that worked really well. Got a lot of schools involved, you know, so it's getting people active but also coming up with some practical, tangible outcomes. And schools is the important bit, isn't it? I think so, yeah. I mean, uh, it's really terrific to see what uh, people in the young kids, are, or I shouldn't call them kids, they're uh, young uh, leaders and ambassadors, really, for, for the environment. They're really setting the bar, I suppose, for their par parents, really, who might not have been aware that uh, uh, if they're going to have a, a positive future, then uh, there, there needs to be a bit of behaviour change and, uh, and choices made in, in what people are consuming and purchasing. The schools uh, are really terrific. I, I was actually, just by the way, went down to the Bayside Council Youth Awards uh, only about uh, two or three weeks ago and uh, there was a young fellow there who's uh, he's 12 years old and he's invented a mobile phone charger which is uh, on a backpack. So as you're walking to school you can be charging your phone if you've got your back facing the sun. So uh, fantastic, you know, brilliant stuff. Also pleased to report that... Uh, 
Sam Perkins, who was a, a scout with the Brighton Sea Scouts, had been um, uh, implementing my beach microplastics audit method at Holloway Bend since October last year and uh, recording the data. Uh, he won a Youth Leadership Award and uh, subsequently he put in, and his, his, uh, the Brighton Sea Scouts uh, colleagues put in a, an application to the Port Phillip Bay Fund to get a small grant to train other scouts to in the method as well. So that's all really positive stuff that um, groups who might not have necessarily got tangibly involved in environmental stuff before are now coming on board. Yeah, so there's, there's real good progress. And you find that the schools and the children living around the bay are more aware maybe than schools and kids a bit further out? I guess... Um, the, the key point of awareness is an understanding that the streets in the suburbs actually are connected to the bay, you know, by the drainage, stormwater drainage system, and uh, many people don't know that. We've developed a litter audit method which um, enables people to do spend an hour just auditing a street area in the suburbs, and there's another method uh, which will enable auditing of creek and riverbanks, and a third one for uh, beaches. So we call it the, the straight-to-see litter audit method. We're hopeful that if we can engage in maybe the Scouts movement, for example, or, or others in uh, auditing sites regularly in the catchments around the bay, as well as beaches, we'll be able to paint a very clear picture about where different types of litter are coming from, have something, a more compelling sort of story to tell, which will uh, make people who are just oblivious of the issue to sort of start to understand. Is there a pattern, though, of what you find, what ends up in the, the drains? Yeah, there'll be things like nodals, for example, that are going, uh, or pre-production pallets of plastic that are going to be coming from industrial areas. Have and, you got uh, onto them to stop them doing it yet? Uh, well, a number of people, uh, a number of companies have actually signed on to the um, uh, protocol, the uh, Operation Clean Sweep protocol that um, Tungarawa Blue have been talking to them about, so... Uh, that conversation is happening. And what does a noodle look like? They look a little bit like a, um, a piece, a small piece of gravel or a grain of sand. Uh, they're, they're about five millimetres across, small plastic, um, and many of them are kind of an opaque colour, you know, so they just look like sand on the beach. Others, though, are coloured, you know, bright yellow, bright red, bright blue. Yeah, they, you do need to get your eye in to actually find them. But there was a big um, noodle find down at Rye Beach only about three weeks ago, I guess. There were uh, almost 3,000 collected off that beach in one day, and that was a couple of days after there'd been an 8mm rainfall event. That was probably the only rain we had in June, I think. That, that highlights, again, just the connection between the, the bay and the, and, the, and the catchments. I think I asked you this before, the, the health of the bay, what needs to be done to make it healthier? Obviously, we need to, with Melbourne's population continuing to grow, but three-quarters of Victoria's population live in catchments around the bay, so it's, we need to be really considering the impacts of human activities around it and particularly what gets into the stormwater system as a result of those human impacts. Trying to not overload it with certain uh, nutrients like nitrogen, uh, you know, that, that's a key 
area to be looking at. Then there's phosphates, but uh, you know there's also and other um, you know like sewerage and uh, obviously the, the the Western treatment plant and keeping that working effectively, preventing uh, sewer leaks and that sort of thing are all part of the, the jigsaw puzzle of um, keeping the bay healthy. We want a certain level of nutrients, but but not an overload. Then, as times are changing, though, you know, we we might find temperatures will be slightly altered. Be, there, there's a, a constant dynamic of change as sea levels are rising. You know, so we we need to be looking at how we're going to manage coasts and and beaches into the future as as uh, they are displaced by sea level rise. Yeah, so there's a whole range of activities we need to uh, be on top of and and aware of and resource more to the point, to be able to keep the bay healthy. And are the inhabitants of the bay changing at all? When I'm talking about fish and all the other creatures that are in the bay, are you losing some and gaining some? To be honest, there are none that um, I'm totally aware that we're losing. I mean, certainly there's a concern, you know, for example, uh, with the Burren and Dolphin population, which still hasn't been formally declared. Apparently it's waiting for boffins to tick it off uh, somewhere. But it's been confirmed by several studies, uh, reputable studies, to be a separate species. And yet there are still discussions around about increasing jet skiing uh, capacity down in, in, in the area where the Boronans breed. You know, so, I mean, it's kind of bizarre that we, we just have this sort of addiction to sort of uh, unfettered consumption and uh, people just having fun because it's their right to do that, even though they could have fun somewhere else doing something completely different. It's still just the, the way we do things and uh, it really would be a shame if, if that um, activity is promoted down along the Mornington Peninsula. I'd much rather see people kite surfing, for example, and they're up in the air and they're, and they're not making any noise and they're doing spectacular things that people can enjoy rather than hooning around and just being obnoxious on the waterways, petrol heads on the water. What does the noise do to the animals? That's a good question, you know. So we know, for example, that dolphins, you know, will, will have calves that, uh, that are actually cared for by their parents for probably around a year. If the... Uh, the Jet skis actually disturb and do something to, to split up and uh, cause them to, to lose each other. Who knows? You know, there, there has been one dolphin calf that was found dead uh, down, uh, I think it was just outside the bay, but it, it came from within it about a year or two ago. We don't know, but the point about it is that there's a, such a very small number of these animals there that are, are beautiful things and a great asset that we should be treating uh, natural assets as potential future uh, economic value. You know, we're, tourism is is increasing in Australia, we're particularly from China. We need to be looking after those sort of things that are going to be tangible assets for the future rather than just taking them for granted and thinking, oh, well, we've got to let these people uh, come and hoon around and uh, even though that, that they could be having fun somewhere else just as well. Well, it can be done. Look how they've protected the penguins over the years. Yeah, and that's that's just a matter of will, really. That's I guess the future of the bay is, you know, we've, we're currently phasing out um, commercial fishing. Well, that's to a certain extent got some positives about it, but it's also got some negatives because um, the fish populations and as a resource, um, fresh fish supply 
it's probably better coming from local well-managed commercial fleets rather than from uh, mass trawlers that are operating and just plundering the oceans. At the same time, we're also wanting to increase though, the number of recreational anglers in the bay up to a, to a million people. You know, where's the logic in that? And that's our Port Phillip baykeeper, Neil Blake. He's been with the Port Phillip baykeeping for a couple of years now and also with the Eco Centre down in St Kilda for many, many years. So great work that he does and continues to do on a very regular basis. I think probably about six days a week, sometimes seven days and great work that Neil does around Port Phillip Bay and particularly around inner city areas. The Australian Unemployed Workers' Union invites you all to a rousing Jam for Jobs and Justice concert on Sunday, July 30, featuring the Horn Stars, Reds Under the Bed and Moreland City Marching Band at the Bella Union Bar, Trades Hall, Carlton, from 2 to 5pm. For tickets, phone 9650-5699 or book online at bellaunion.com.au. $15 full, $10 concession. Raffles and prizes are part of the deal. For more info, contact unemployedworkersunion.com. Help protect the rights and dignity of unemployed workers and pensioners. Get along to Jobs and Justice. Bella Union, Sunday, July 30. The 7th Annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am to 6pm. The Book Fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking and to meet with like-minded folk. It's free and we also provide free childcare. At the Brunswick Town Hall on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am to 6pm. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook, the Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. And if you're one of those very few people around 3CR and indeed around Melbourne who haven't purchased their scarf, their Palestinian scarf, we've got some new ones in today. 3CR are selling Kofia Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. The world has been waiting for this legal norm for 70 years since witnessing the devastating power of nuclear weapons. What was negotiated on the 7th of July at UN headquarters in New York is a global treaty endorsed by 122 countries after months of talks in the face of strong opposition from nuclear-armed states and their allies who boycotted the negotiations. Only the Netherlands, which took part in the discussions, voted against the treaty and Singapore, which abstained in the vote.
in addition to representatives of the governments of these countries over the three weeks of negotiations, were members of non-government organisations from around the world. And Australia was well represented, even though our government boycotted the meeting. One of those attending was the National President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, Dr Margie Beavis, who is on the line now. And Margie, can you first talk about the build-up to this historic vote on the 7th July? A long time coming. Well, it really goes back more than a decade. Um, or even for some, I mean, obviously many even further, but in about 2006, we in Melbourne, the Medical Association for Prevention of War, and I can't take any personal credit for this, sadly, but others, uh, like Dimity Hawkins, Tillman Ruff, Bill Williams, got together and put together the concept of ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. That was launched here in Melbourne. It was based on the sort of landmines treaty approach, where it was going to be an organisation that didn't set up new organisations but united many voices. And so in 2007, they then took that internationally to the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, and they were strongly supported this campaign, said they put their resources behind it. Bill Williams famously got into a kangaroo suit, and it was the I Kangaroo, which helped convince them. And so they started to gather organisations together internationally, and sort of organisations like the Red Cross came out in 2012, I think it was, very strongly making this clear statement saying that there was no possible response to a nuclear detonation, and that given the appalling consequences, the only possible ethical approach was prevention. So then they gathered more and more organisations. By the end, they had over 440 organisations in 100 countries, which is a pretty impressive civil society building of groundswell of public opinion. And so in 2013, 2014, they invited governments to come to conferences to educate them about nuclear weapons. And because really this whole process has been a reframing of nuclear weapons from a political issue to actually focusing on what they actually do to people because people sort of tend to, it's much safer to think of them just in terms of politics but if you start to think about them in terms of what they actually do to people they're, they're appalling. So they had three large conferences where they invited governments and governments attended well, one in Norway then followed by one in Mexico and one in Austria and out of the Austrian conference came the, a declaration, what was called the Humanitarian Declaration, where nations signed up to say that they supported these weapons being declared illegal and abolished. And so that in turn, after those, after letting governments know, I mean, your listeners probably know, but not only is the, the appalling direct effects of a nuclear blast where people are killed and obviously there's no hospitals and no doctors and no ambulance, nobody's, they're all dead too. But in addition, if there's a, a sort of limited nuclear exchange, I think it's less than 0.1% of the current nuclear arsenal, there'd be so much particulate matter into the atmosphere, we'd end up with a nuclear winter for decades. And that in turn would reduce crop yields by about 10 to 15%, which in turn would lead to global famine. And the modelling for that number of weapons is it probably would put about 2 billion, not 2 million, 2 billion lives at risk. So the, the humanitarian stuff is really pretty ghastly. So the next thing after the, that declaration came the United Nations Open-Ended Working Group, which met last year, and then this led on to United Nations negotiations this year. And ironically, Australia at the working group behaved very badly because they participated, but they, at the end, when a consensus document had just about been drafted by all these diplomats after weeks and weeks of work, Australia called for a vote. 
that ironically backfired because one of the countries said, no, if you're going to make us vote, we're going to have a much stronger resolution. So instead of voting on a fairly wishy-washy resolution, they voted on a resolution that said, we're going to get the ban treaty negotiated in 2017. Thank you very much, not drag on for years. So that was voted on, very strongly supported just before Christmas. And so this year, um, at the United Nations, they had a, a brief organising meeting in January. Then in March, they did the first week of negotiations. And then in June, July, we've just been had the momentous three weeks of negotiations in New York that have on just on Friday passed a resolution to make these on a legally binding resolution that will lead to the elimination of nuclear weapons by making by prohibiting them and making it very clear that these are illegal weapons. Okay, I just wanted to mention also that the Habakshu were were a driving force in the in the creation of the nuclear free treaty. Oh, absolutely. The Bakshu were magnificent. We, we have had some really moving and powerful speeches from survivors of, from Japan, from Hiroshima and Nagasaki that have been really very powerful. And these were given at the United Nations, but also we've had speeches from, for instance, Rosemary Lester from the South Australian fields that were bombed. Her father went blind, Yami Lester. And also from the Marshall Islands, people, I mean, people sort of don't realise that testing that was in the Pacific and the Marshall Islands probably copped it worse than most. One of the bombs that was dropped, just one of them in the Marshall Islands, was 1,000 times more powerful than the bomb that dropped on Hiroshima. So the impacts on that society and the ongoing impacts on that society are just terrible. I mean, the, the stories of mothers miscarrying with these terribly damaged jellyfish babies that they called them. And, and just the cancer rates are much higher and people have not been able to go back to their homelands even now, sort of, you know, from tests in the 60s because the, the, the land is so contaminated. So, yes, the Hibakshia were very powerful. I'm just wondering how ICANN and MAPW funded all these groups and, and helped build this campaign over those years. Well, we had some very generous support initially from the Paula Foundation and... Then we got a large government grant from Norway, but there's also been many, many people who've, I mean, enormous amounts of time donated, but also many people who've donated in funds to support this campaign, and we have been incredibly fortunate in that regard. I mean, there have been times over the 10 years where locally things have been very tight, and in fact still still, still are not as good as, I mean, we, we are always interested, the next phase will also require a lot of work, and if any of your listeners feel like donating to ICANN or MAPW, but ICANN, I'm sure that any funds would be very gratefully appreciated, but certainly some local donors very kindly helped us, and then the Norwegian government was a big part of it, and then again we've gone back to relying on local donors, but we're very grateful for their support. Well, you were there in your capacity as the National President of the Medical Association for Prevention of War. What was it like at the UN headquarters? Look, it was really so exciting. Amazing to be in the room, to, to look. It was sort of a bit like a theatre with the diplomats all down on the lower level and us sort of up the back on a slightly sloped area. And to look over this, you know, 120, nearly 130 diplomats talking to each other, to be able to put a little earpiece on your ear and be able to hear all the different languages being instantaneously translated it was sort of amazing. There was such a buzz in the room. Not that we were saying anything, we were all being very quiet, but... 
the instantaneous translation was amazing. And just to watch, to have a forum where countries can talk to each other so easily, so readily, it made me realise what a wonderful achievement that the United Nations really is in terms of bringing nations together to try and resolve things with talk rather than with conflict. ICANN had a big group, there would have been 30 or 40 of us there as observers amongst other groups. But what was fun was we all got tasks. I mean, you could choose which group you went and did work with. So after a few days watching the negotiations, we sort of got out of the group I went. I joined up with a couple of, a few doctors from the Physicians for Social Responsibility in America. And we would go and, instead of doing a pub crawl, we would do an embassy crawl. So we'd, <laughs> we'd be dressed up to the nines. You know, it's 90 degrees and we're all in suits and looking as fancy as we can, and going around to the embassies and waving our credentials at them, saying, you know, you're from the United Nations, we've been trying to contact, which we had been, we've been trying to telephone, we've done telephone calls as well, but trying to contact your first secretary, or trying to contact your person in charge of disarmament, and because we were looked, looked fancy and we had these nice credentials, they'd let us in, so <laughs> we'd go into the embassy and talk to whoever's ear we could chew. It was actually incredibly enjoyable and very satisfying to be able to go in and... and be able to talk to these people to, I mean, we were trying to, there were other people lobbying more directly on the actual issue, but our, as lower level lobbyists, was to just get them to sign up so that when the vote came at the end, their country could be in the room and their vote could count. And that was really, I mean, we went to Uzbekistan, we went to the Congo, we went to some kids, so it was like sort of travelling the world on foot. It was very, um, very interesting and exciting and, and a lot of fun. Was the media interested because there was virtually no coverage here? The coverage, I think the media think negotiations are boring and then once you've got the vote, it's worth sort of a flash in the pan and then it's gone. I think there wasn't a huge amount of media interest. Certainly the um, ICANN put out some fabulous stuff on Twitter and Facebook and some really good little snippets of what was happening and how it was happening and they got a lot of views in the social media. But in terms of the traditional media, I don't think there was a huge amount of coverage. But we're going to work on that. I think... What's interesting is with all this South Korea, North Korea stuff, people are suddenly starting to think nuclear weapons are much more front of mind and people are much more able to think about the weapons than they are able to think about disarmament and that's, that's, that's something we have to really work on to get people to recognise that disarmament, the only way conflict ever really ends is with negotiation and if we can get the negotiations happening before there's conflict, you can save so many millions of lives. Well, on the 7th of July, the treaty was adopted by 122 countries in favour, one against, which was Holland, and one abstention, which was Singapore. What does the treaty say? The treaty's basically got the preamble, which mentions all all the important international humanitarian law aspects of this, it mentions the damage that's been done to Zibaksha and the also the, the balance, the damage done by nuclear weapons is much greater for women and for children. Sadly, it recognises the inalienable right to nuclear power, but that was, I think, always going to be part of the, the negotiations given that nuclear power is part of the fuel chain for nuclear weapons. But I think to get countries to sign on, that was unfortunately a necessity. Then in terms of the further articles, it looks into what it will take for countries to sign on, what the nuts and bolts of how it's going to be reviewed. So countries can either disarm and then sign on, or they can sign on and then disarm. The latter articles, some of them got very technical, but we were always very keen for this to be quite a straight
straightforward treaty because the, the technicalities of the verification are extremely complex and will probably change over time. So we were very pleased because there will be quite frequent review, an annual review of this treaty, and that in turn will mean that the revisions can be made as need be. So no, overall we were very pleased with it. It's a, it's a very strong, forthright treaty with sort of time-bound, verifiable goals, and I think we'll do a lot to, I mean, to prohibit these, these appalling weapons. So the next step for us in Australia is twofold. The next steps are to move on to divestment, so getting places like the Commonwealth Bank, Westpac, ANZ, and Macquarie to get rid of their holdings in companies that invest in nuclear weapons because there is quite strong provisions in this that it is illegal to assist in the production of nuclear weapons and by providing investment support you are assisting. Well, the Future Fund also, our superannuation fund for public servants, also invests in companies that support nuclear weapons. So we'll be pushing for divestment. And the other thing that we'll really strongly be pushing was for the Australian government to sign on to this treaty because the ALP and the Greens both support this treaty and support signing on to making nuclear weapons illegal, but our government, the current Liberal government, does not and tries to justify these illegal weapons as being a form of protection for Australia, which is just morally unacceptable. Staying with the next stage, the ratification, how does that work? For the next stage, is what the treaty itself will open up for signatories on September 20th, which is when the next when the General Assembly meets. Um, some people have said that they feel this treaty is going to be vetoed by the Security Council. Well, no, this, is, this treaty is now through. It's done. It's not going to be vetoed. They, these nuclear weapons have joined chemical and biological weapons, landmines and cluster munitions as illegal weapons. So September 20, they open for signatory. And then over the next two years, once 50 countries have signed up, they've had it passed through their parliaments, so probably the next two or three years, once 50 countries have done that, it will become international law. That's a very powerful thing. So these are the next steps, and we're fairly confident with 122 countries signing on that we'll be able to get the 50 countries to bring this into international law. You mentioned North Korea and South Korea a moment ago. I'd just like to talk about that for a moment. The condemnation of North Korea for firing another missile, our media and politicians scream provocation, aggression, yet not one corporate media outlet here, or I'd say other countries as well, will inform their readers or listeners to the perpetual threat to North Korea. There's over 20,000 US troops on its border in South Korea. Yes. There are 50,000 US troops in neighbouring Japan. And, and yep. US Navy strike forces roam the sea around North Korea. I mean, there was, I also could see no mention. I, I heard that there had been two in the, in the current exercises. The U.S. is currently doing military mock-up exercises, but there were two mock bombing runs going in South Korea with using U.S. bombers, and I, I think that there's a lot of military aggression from America. And they have and those war games every year there. Yeah, yeah, every spring. And it's no surprise that North Korea feels somewhat beleaguered with the very strong... U.S. military presence, as, you, as you've just outlined. And as you said, there's very little coverage. The Russians and the Chinese are saying that there would be much greater likelihood of getting North Korea back to the negotiating table if the U.S. can pull back 
on its military exercises. But that doesn't seem to be something that's popular with Donald Trump, so it seems to be highly unlikely that it's going to happen. It's also, there's some commentary to say that in the State Department and in the Pentagon that there are senior policy positions that are unfilled and that, that for good, strong policy to, to emerge that there actually aren't even the personnel in the right positions in the US to, to be driving this. So that's, that's a concerning thought as well, given that the unpredictability of the two leaders involved. And now we have Turnbull talking about a, a missile shield. <laughs> yes, I think these missile shields are, I mean, since Reagan first conceived it, the best numbers I can see is that they've spent over $200 billion trying to get the missile shield working. And then to this point, the most recent tests out of 18 tests where they knew when the missile was going to be launched, they knew the speed of the missile, the new trajectory of the missile, out of 18 tests, they managed to hit 10, but that's when they knew that was just one missile. So the, the missile shield, I think, is a, is a great symbol, but in terms of the reality, I think it's a long way off being a realistic thing. And, and in fact, prohibitively expensive. The Americans, the Trump administration, its missile defense agency is asking for $380 billion this year. Now, $380 billion is just like a breathtaking amount of money, and they're still that's being reviewed. But... The other concern is the system that's being put into South Korea, which is the, the, the people I've heard of the THAAD or the Terminal High Altitude Area Defence System that's going into South Korea. And that's being reviewed by South Korea. I think the new South Korean president is trying to be a bit more conciliatory with North Korea and hopefully that may also help lead the talks because, I mean, when you think about it, it's 64 years since the Korean War ceasefire was declared. And there hasn't ever been a peace agreement. I mean, really, it's still just an armistice. There's, there's no peace agreement in place between the Koreans, North and South. We need to hope that we can get people to the table before anything happens. I know this is not quite related to what we've been talking about, but the announcement of the, the lithium battery for South Australia. Yes, that's terrific. We're really, given that um, not so long ago South Australia was full of nuclear, pro-nuclear uh, royal commissions and proposals to import waste to actually have a proposal where this can this battery is, is not the answer but it's certainly a huge step forward if they can get this to sit with their renewables which it will and provide reliable dispatchable power when they need to they'll still need to have a gas plant to back up it's of note that this battery plant is going in a couple of hours north of Adelaide where there's a lot of job losses have occurred from coal fire power stations shutting down so it's really good that it's going to be regionally appropriate in terms of hopefully providing more jobs but also wonderful step forward into the sort of 21st century instead of this continual going back to coal which is such a not only such a polluting and damaging source of power but also a complete mismatch for supplementing renewables that's very slow and baseload. So I think having having this battery power generation moving forward is, is a huge step forward and really good for South Australia. I'll say what I should have said at the beginning, welcome home. <laughs> yes, I, it's, it's nice to be back. <laughs> you do go away and then you come back and you think how lucky we were to be born in Australia. Thanks, Margie. Um, thank you. A very happy Dr Margie Beavis, who's the National President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, back from the UN meeting to ban nuclear weapons. Bring it on. Do you live in Darabin? Darabin Council is here to help you in whichever language you speak. 
If you have a question about your rates, rubbish collection or any council matter, call us on our multilingual telephone line on 8470-8470 to speak with one of our officers or an interpreter. Or you can visit us at our office in Preston, Reservoir or Northcote. Call us on 8470-8470 or come and see us. A 3CR supporter. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. Peace Brigades International has been making space for peace for over 30 years, promoting non-violence and protecting human rights workers. And Australia has a role, being one of the countries who has observers providing protective accompaniment to local human rights defenders whose lives and work are under threat. Lewis Robinson is one such volunteer from Melbourne who spent a year in Oaxaca, Mexico, Returning home just over a year ago, I asked Lewis first to explain a little of the history of PBI, Peace Brigades International. Peace Brigades International was set up about 35 years old by a group, an eclectic group, but substantially of, of Quakers, that set about implementing a vision of, of providing greater protection to those that were advancing human rights causes around the world. And so it started in Canada, actually, with a strong Latin American focus and expanded from there. But it was a very grassroots organisation at the start. It's founded substantially within those, the, the, the pacifist Quaker values. And I'd imagine at that time focusing on Latin America was the reason what was happening in Latin America and over those years? Yeah, it's essentially begun with that local focus because a lot of the original members were from Canada and the northern uh, North America. But I think it was also in response to those issues in Guatemala. There was an early presence, Honduras, and the Mexico project, which I was involved in, came, came later on. But, yeah, in response to the, the issues with um, democratic processes in all those countries. And over the years, there's a number of countries now involved in the international side of it? There are. So now there's a project. So I suppose it's um, quite a difficult one to conceive of in terms of how it's, how it's managed and run, if you're not familiar with the organisation. But because there's a whole bunch of working country groups, PBI country groups, that is to say, of which in Australia there's one, and there's sort of between 15 and 20 active ones around the world, in Europe and North America, but of actual projects on the ground where there's teams similar to the one that I was involved in that are working with local persecuted human rights defenders, uh, there's six. So you have Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, Colombia, and then also in Kenya, um, and there's a small project in Indonesia as well. And there has been others over the years? There has been, yeah. There's been involvements in, in other parts as well. There was a project in Nepal at some point. Um, there's been greater involvement in, in specific areas as well, depending on, on certain events over time. And Honduras amongst them is one of the, the newest ones, as is Kenya. They've only been going in the last few years. But uh, 
there has been that sort of ongoing involvement in, 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 in particularly in Colombia, Mexico and Guatemala now. It's quite an established history. What was your pathway to becoming a volunteer? I finished my degree, had always been interested in human rights work, but also I think more specifically working with people that, um, that face persecution in that context because of their legitimate work. I was volunteering at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre and, and came across a lot of really inspiring human rights workers that unfortunately had, had had to leave their country because of the persecution that they're facing from governments or non-state actors. I thought it would be really a great privilege if I could find a job where I could be working more directly with those people at an earlier stage on that continuum of persecution. And I actually met someone who had been previously quite involved with the Mexican project and they told me about PBI. I just then initiated the quite lengthy process of applications and um, interviews and workbooks and training seminars until finally got to go to, to Mexico, I think about eight months after I, I first submitted the in interest application in volunteering. I'd imagine there might be a few people drop out over that eight months because it is pretty involved, isn't it? Yeah, it's very involved. Understandably. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a very particular model and I suppose it, um, it asks quite a bit of the volunteer in terms of living and working in the same house, working six days a week. You know, there's a lot of pressure, I think, from a work perspective and responding to the, the risks and trying to do the best possible job for both the human rights workers, but just on a practical level of, of living with other people in such close quarters for that period. So they really do test, I, I think, how well you, you're suited to, to both those things. And, and, and I guess as well, it's not, it's not remunerated. I mean, there's a small stipend, but it's a voluntary position substantially. That does cause sort of a natural attrition that I think is a significant amount get whittled back over the months. And you have to learn Spanish. Where do you learn that? I suppose you can learn it in, in a lot of places these days. Just thinking from when the group that, that came through with me and some had been living in Latin America and travelling or were already speaking another romance language and picked it up. In my experience, I did an, a diploma of Spanish at, at Monash where I did my undergrad degree, and I also had the opportunities to live a couple of years in Latin America prior to going to Mexico, I think, which, which helped me out quite a bit. What did you learn about the history of um, Mexico, and was Mexico the place you wanted to go, or did you think you might want to go to one of the other countries? I always wanted to go to Mexico. I think it, it was quite fortunate that the initial contact I had that... Um, introduced me to PBI, also had an involvement in Mexico because that would have been the country that I would have been most interested in in any event. The history I learnt from studying, at studied in Guadalajara where I lived for a year in western highlands of Mexico in 2010 and um, it just fascinated me. I think it's an incredible country. It's such a place of such diversity, such cultural richness and, and beauty and also such tragedy as well. There are so many issues with how the countries run, and I guess for people that are trying to advance progressive causes and advance human rights and, and also just journalists, and for a lot of people in, in Mexico, it is a very difficult place to live, those that aren't even involved in that sphere as well. So I guess I always wanted to go back. I, I always thought I'd, I'd like opportunity to sort of 
contribute more than just the indulged year student of frivolity and fun, which is which substantially defined my my initial contact with the country. What did you know about Oaxaca? I knew that it was a beautiful city, which I had had the opportunity to travel through previously. I knew that it, it, this rich cultural reputation that it has um, is full of galleries and and really unique food, and beautiful beaches and mountains. So that, I guess they're all the banal touristy things that I was aware of. I also did know that it had the largest indigenous population in Mexico. And I guess something that I discovered through the, that eight-month training period, actually, as I, I furthered my knowledge of the place, was just the diversity of different indigenous cultures in Oaxaca and, and all the different languages that are spoken there as well. It's an incredibly culturally diverse place. And I think, uh, you know, I mean, I did have some awareness of that prior to, to sort of getting involved in the whole PBI experience. And that was something that had, had attracted me to, because there are teams in both uh, Oaxaca and also in the north, in, in Chihuahua as well. And I, that was something that drew me to, to working and living in the in the south. But I'd be exaggerating if I said I knew a lot about the culture and uh, yeah, the culture but the history the politics much beyond the fact that it was a beautiful place that I was interested in seeing well from a, a, an idyllic place perhaps there's a lot of human rights abuses what did you find out about why one of the big issues uh, in in Oaxaca is based around the rich resources that the so the vast array of of minerals there's actually a massive uh, wind farm presence in the south of the state in Tehuantepec it's just one of the windiest places or the best places to put up wind farms in the country um, and the world actually and also large-scale projects related to dams and hydroelectric schemes one of the big um, drivers of conflict in the state is that nexus between indigenous communities and protecting their rights, their culture, and the interests of larger, of both the government and um, private financial enterprises that wanted to tap into those rich resources, and the inevitable tensions between those two interests at times. That was one of the big factors there as well. I think another thing too is that Oaxaca has a rich history of of resistance and, and, and protest, and it's a proud history, and I think it is one that colours how people organise themselves in Oaxaca, because there is this a remarkable and disproportionate quantity of um, non-government organisations that are involved in various community um, rights defence or human rights initiatives. There's historically been a tension between the state and those groups, which is, um, I suppose, runs parallel to that issue that I just touched on about the local resources and, and rights groups which is of a more general nature. Is the state controlled from Mexico City or is it a separate instrument of power? So there is a federal government, which is the Revolutionary Institutional Party of of Mexico. Peña Nieto is the president, known mostly, I suppose, for enforcing his claims against the wall against Trump these days. But that's what's happening at a federal level and was happening at a federal level when I was there in Mexico two years ago. But there is also a state government, which is a rival party, which was the National Action Party, I suppose it translates as. They do do things quite independently, and they do do some things in concert. So it's an interesting 
question because part of the work that we did at PBI was in, was directed at um, making state officials aware of our presence and of our concern for the security or insecurity of local human rights workers in in Oaxaca, and that required quite an in-depth knowledge of both the federal and the state actors to understand where their powers did differentiate and how they did act um, and see particular uh, scenarios for for different defenders in in the state. And when you arrived there, who were the people who needed defending? Who were they supporting? When I arrived in the middle of 2015, PBI had two formal accompaniments well, three actually. There was one which was the Centre um, Código de Arche, it's called, which is, um, translates roughly as the Centre for um, the Integral Defence Human Rights, um, Gobija. And they were involved a lot in, I guess their most prevalent work was with regards to a consultation process that was happening in that Tehuantepec region with regards to um, a proposed large-scale wind farm and in that conflict, there was a tension between local indigenous representatives that were opposing the way that the wind farm was to be developed versus the state and private enterprises that were in a conglomerate attempting to, to, to pass the project through. And there was a consultation process going on, which was the first of its kind, actually, in Mexico, where... They were trying to get the involvement of the local community, indigenous community, in insofar as getting their opinions about how they wanted the project implemented and what sort of compensation they thought was necessary, what sort of environmental um, regulations they wanted in place. But there were a lot of irregularities which had, with how that procedure was rushed on and there was also intimidation and, um, and, and more severe security incidents for the local human rights workers that were involved, which, to bring it back, were working with that um, that Código de Arche. Um, and so that was one of the, the most pressing issues when I arrived there. Other than that, there was quite a few other small-scale um, development projects going on, or, sorry, large-scale projects, but with different community resistance groups. Did you stay with that organisation or those people for the whole time you were there, or did you move on to work with other people as well? Yeah, it did. So the, the way that the accompaniments work is that an organisation requests from PBI that they receive accompaniment in field in their human rights work. So, And that's usually a one- or two-year arrangement, but something that rolls on so long as there is an ongoing risk. And that organisation was had been involved with PBI for at least seven years since uh, before I began, just due to their ongoing nature of their work and their extensive history of, of involvement in those similar matters in Oaxaca. I'm speaking with Lewis Robinson, a recent volunteer from Australia to Oaxaca in Mexico with Peace Brigades International brave people oh incredibly brave yeah put you to shame really just the day in day out risks that they they were facing so yeah and and they were one of the organizations that the pbi did and, and i understand is still involved with do any people 
die or attacked or is the accompaniment so strict that you accompany people 24 hours a day? It can be, and people, human rights defenders, can and and do die in Mexico. Um, I don't have the exact figures at hand, but yeah, it's a lamentable reality of an absence of, of safeguards for human rights workers in the legal work that they're doing in the country. No member of a human rights organisation has died that PBI has been involved with. There have been occasions, not when I was there, but there have been in the past where uh, 24-hour accompaniments have been requested and and deemed necessary. That was more in Guerrero, which is a neighbouring state, which actually the team I was involved in sort of stepped up its, its involvement with during my year. But that's really when it's a a much higher risk situation and and, and, um, fortunately for the people we were involved with that wasn't the case when I was there. Can you give us an example of a week, what it's like to live with someone who's facing danger or maybe not imminent danger but has got a very stressful job? Mm. I think a typical week in PBI is, is atypical. Not only, I suppose in its contents anyway, but just in in the nature that, in the simple sense that from one week to the next it always changes. But you might be involved in, you might have a few meetings with different um, state officials where, something I touched on earlier, that essentially that advocacy work, trying to increase the state authority's awareness of either the state so the, the legal framework that they should be enforcing to ensure that the, the security human rights defenders or the defence services that they should be providing to increase the security of, of those human rights workers or, in some cases, to desist from, from persecuting as well. So there might be a bit of that. There could be, you might be writing an article as part of a publication just that would be then fanned out through the PBI broader network to raise awareness about issues that are occurring in the state. You might be involved in um, preparation for a training seminar for a particular organisation that might want more um, knowledge about how they can increase their digital security and using better, safer technology to ensure that they're less at less risk from um, hacking and interference and surveillance in that sense. You could be organising meetings between international human rights groups or you know, UN or diplomatic representatives and local grassroots organisations to further their networks. Or you could just be spending a couple of hours trying to pay an electricity bill. I mean, it was everything from from the mundane to the, I guess, more engaging and interesting. Or something actually, sorry, which is very critical that I, that I passed over, is actually going out in field when you get that request for accompaniment, which might be out deep in the jungle of, of Oaxaca there out on a 10-hour bus ride with a a human rights worker that has requested your presence because um, there has been, they feel that they're at risk and you've done an assessment and think they are and that you have um, some value add to in being present just by being, wearing the PBI shirt, letting the authorities know who you are so that they, relying essentially on that, um, that equation that, for the for the persecuting government, it's going to be more detrimental for them to continue with any proposed harm against that or human rights worker 
by virtue of your presence there. So is the T-shirt and the meeting with or talking about government officials, is that your guarantee for safety or is there more to it than that? At the end of the day, it is very brittle. Brittle in the sense that there isn't any bulletproof vest and there isn't any great physical security that PBI provides. It's largely a, a structured advocacy and it is this, this sort of putting pressure on the authorities by letting them know that you in this PBI t-shirt represent the concerns of the broader community, not just in Mexico but in the world, that are watching what's going on and that if anything happens to these people, that being the local human rights workers, then there are going to be a lot of powerful people in the world that we'll find out through PBI's channels that will create a lot of a lot of drama for that particular state authority and so but at the end of the day it's just a t-shirt with a um, very 80s symbol of PBI written across it and that is what it comes down to. But nevertheless not a job for the faint-hearted? No no I I, I think yeah it is it is one that you, you probably have to be drawn to wanting to see what it's like for someone on those front lines. But the PBI risk is definitely, as a PBI volunteer, is one that is is a lot lesser than, is on, in, incomparable to that which they face day in, day out as the actual human rights workers in Mexico. And, you know, I mean, that's proven by the fact that in the three and a half decades of PBI's existence that no one has ever been, no PBI volunteer has ever been killed Plenty of human rights workers in the countries where PBI works have been in that in that time. So it's a risk, but it isn't one to be exaggerated, but I suppose not one to be overlooked either. Mm. And I'd imagine that the Indigenous peoples are very strong in those areas. Yeah. They know what they want. It's their land. Are there any land rights? There are, and there's a very complex system in Oaxaca particularly. They have it... A system called uses and customs. Local communities are able to organise themselves and they can organise themselves substantially in a way that follows how their sort of native customs, I suppose, their, their, their Indigenous practices would deal with, resolu- would, would resolve conflicts and, and make decisions. Um, and that, I suppose, is, is largely defined by collective decision making. And that's a really interesting thing to observe. But at the same time, I also would be reluctant to say to pretend that it is there is sort of one harmonised view that or voice that comes out of those different indigenous groups. I mean, there are more than fifteen in Oaxaca, and um, of them, there is always different voices. Like in any community, you're going to have different voices that see things from a completely different manner. And unfortunately, one of the sad recurring things that happens when there is a large scale economic project in in the wings is uh, and if there is some initial community resistance there'll often be a, a structured sort of campaign of defamation that would be organized by the state to go against those human rights workers and then to try and turn the community against them and that that sort of theory of divide and and conquer i suppose so sadly you do see less harmony often than, than would be desired, I suppose. Apart from the Indigenous peoples and people fighting for their land rights, what about issues of trade unions and environmentalists and women? Because they're often the issues in Latin America with people being killed, mm. being threatened. 
definitely. With trade unions, I mean, PBI, unfortunately, just because of its, in many ways, limited resources, has to choose, is very strategic about how it goes about work and just decided there's sort of two main areas that were in focus when I was there and one was impunity. That that encompassed a whole range of things, sort of torture, forced disappearances, things you hear a lot about, sadly, in Mexico, and also migration, which which was also a, a big issue when I was there too. Abuse of migrants, particularly migrants traversing through Central America, traversing through Mexico from Central America en route to the US. There was that, and there was that, I guess, Indigenous communities in nexus with large-scale projects. And that did often encompass environmental issues because often the local communities would be protesting against, for example, the development of a, of a massive dam, which would then cause you know, massive degradation of the land in the area and loss to the communities in that sense. So I guess in, in a, just out of in pursuit of, uh, of defence or in defence of, of those people, then environmental causes were also included. But labour, unfortunately, wasn't... Labour rights wasn't one of the ones which PBI could focus on. Women was, though, and the vast majority of human rights defenders in Mexico are women. I did just say that, but I'm pretty sure I did see a stat that, that, that'll corroborate me if, if anyone wants to look that up. Why do you believe that is? Perhaps it's a reality of the area. I know in PBI the majority of volunteers are women as well. And I think it, it, it could just be because I mean, it's very hard to say. It, it would be very conjectural for me to hypothesise. At some level there's a certain courage. that you. See. I mean, there's a massive amount of courage that the work demands to be a human rights worker week in, week out in Mexico. And I think it just seems to be something that more often women than and men are doing. So I think I'll leave it to the listeners to make their own conclusions about why that might be. But it's certainly incredibly inspiring, the amount of particularly women you see that are really just putting their lives on the line day in, day out. And impunity is an issue there as it is in many countries in Latin America still. Yeah, certainly. I wouldn't feel as uh, sort of as qualified to, to comment on the the details or the, the type of impunity that you would see in, in other Latin American countries. But there's certain a rich history of um, sort of a fragile rule of law and a lack of prosecution of, uh, of crimes and a lack of defence for those whose, whose rights are, are violated. And, and, and I guess it's something that I did touch upon, but it's a massive issue there at the moment in Mexico, and particularly one that was faced by the team in the north of the country. And one that is faced now by that southern team that I was part of in their involvement, particularly in Guerrero, is the theme of forced disappearances. The amount of forced disappearance, I mean, it was a number over 26,000 people when I was there two years ago, and I know it's only increased. Over what area? That was at a national level, yeah. but you do see higher numbers in, in the north, in, in particularly in another two hours, one of the the worst states, and Colwilla, the neighbouring state there. And Guerrero is another really bad state too. But I do know it. there are big numbers in Veracruz, Puebla too, but they're particularly regions. And I think it's you know one of the most notable stories and sad stories to come out of Mexico was that of the 43 disappeared students in Ayotzinapa in September of 2014, just before I was there. But That's never been resolved, has it? no. 
that sadly is a is a story that you hear in Mexico is that there is often a lot of people working behind the scenes and directly against the or in the face of the government to ensure that the proper processes are in place so that crimes are investigated as they should be. But it's just so often met with a lack of real commitment in terms of resources and, and willpower to, to follow things through for various reasons. But it's a really sad reality in, of working in Mexico. And, of course, the other group that's targeted on a regular basis is, are the journalists. Yeah, that's, that's a massive issue in, in Mexico as well. I mean, that's an interesting one because... I think the UN had expanded the definition recently, or relatively recently, of human rights defenders to include journalists as well as people that should be protected. But because Peace Brigades International could only work with organisations that had been formed legally as, as an organisation, then it sort of made it harder to, to help journalists. It substantially worked individually as just these lone soldiers often. But it's awful the number of homicides, assassinations of, of journalists that, that happen in Mexico. And I think it is one of the most dangerous countries in the world to practice journalism. It's a reality as well. We had contacts there in PBI that we could rely on that worked for large independent media organisations who had been forced to leave the country because of torture that they had suffered and spent some time in the US until it cools off and come back and to hear that from you know not one but several people I mean it's quite it's a chilling reality. Nevertheless was it difficult to leave when your time was up? Yeah I think it it was really hard I loved PBI and. Was there a particular person that you grew attached to? I was involved mostly with and I haven't spoken about actually but Father Solalinde, who's quite an inspiring old renegade priest that runs a bunch of hostels for migrants transiting through Central from Central America. But because I think he's been such an effective and articulate and fearless voice of those people, he's gathered a lot of international support and, and, and renown, which then translates as greater defence. So whilst he had, you know, homes in Ixtepec, Chauitas, both in the in the southern corner of of Oaxaca, closer to the border, and opened up a new one in Oaxaca. There wasn't a lot to do with him from a day to day, but I, I was very close. Like I mean, we would check in, and I did feel very very fond of 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 this defender. But I suppose I wouldn't say it was necessarily any individual that I felt wrenched away from. It was more just the situation. I think the longer you're you're there, the the more you get the sense of how deep these issues are and how it... I wouldn't like to say the word intractable just because I am an optimist. I really do think that there is space for reform there. I think there's just so many great, inspiring, intelligent and progressive people that are are pushing things in the right direction, but it is a very slow wheel that's in turn. And 12 months at PBI is really just a drop in a very, very vast ocean. And I think just realising how little you can do and and, and really contribute in any individual sense to the broader changes that that need to take place. And once you're home, there's a debriefing process? There is. Yeah, there's one available. It is a bit 
sort of just tossed out and and get back into it. I mean, I came back and and was just sort of you know land on my feet and take my head and just sort of get on with life here. And I think it probably did take me a bit of time to readjust. And I did know that there was counselling services I could have accessed. There is a six-month counselling that you can get um, access to if you need. But, um, yeah, it is. I guess it's always just going to be a very dramatic change of, of setting. Will you go back? Oh, I'd, I would be very sad if I don't get the chance to go back to Mexico at some point. I, I think it's the most amazing place. It is the most amazing country I've travelled in. I'm very happy in Australia and, and, and love it here, but I really do think, oh, it's a place that you hear a lot of people say to you, you know, once they've been once, you just, hard to feel that that would have been my last trip to, to Mexico and Oaxaca particularly as well. And I was been speaking there with Lewis Robertson, a volunteer with PBI, Peace Brigades International Australia, who work with human rights defenders in Oaxaca, Mexico, for a year. Lewis has asked me to pass on a public message of condolences on his behalf following the tragic death of a colleague of Father Sololinde, Alberto Donis, also a human rights defender, who worked with the priest who ran several migrant refuges in the state. That's all for today. I will be back next Tuesday at four o'clock for another two hours of Tuesday Home Time. Go out with a little bit of Kev Comedy and bye for now.